and Peter. The uh, flowers here this morning uh, are in memory. Yesterday we had a memorial service for uh, Myrtle Berglund, 102 years old when she went home to be with the Lord. And uh, Myrtle was one of those people who just touched a lot of people's lives, taught Sunday school to boys in particular, and uh, had a way, and uh, just a lot of testimony about her life, a life really well lived. And so um, it was a privilege to just uh, celebrate her life yesterday. Um, last week, if you were with us, you remember in um, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, uh, we came across uh, a, a description of a God-first life. Uh, and uh, I suggested that uh, God says this is what would be um, a good life in God's eyes, a good life in verse 8. And, uh, but I neglected to kind of point out a phrase uh, in verse 9. It says in verse 9, when we live a God-first life like that, and we're compassionate and sympathetic, and we have harmony with one another and so on and so forth, we're humble. Um, when, that, when we live like that, you can expect that evil and insults will come your way, just like the Lord. When he lived here and he lived like that and was compassionate and generous and gave grace all the time, uh, evil and insults came his way. And so Peter is telling us, look, when evil and insults come your way, don't repay them in the same way. Don't respond to evil with more evil or insults with more insults. And he says, uh, but instead of all of that, um, respond with a blessing. Respond with grace. Respond by giving to that uh, person. Uh, respond with forgiveness. Respond with undeserved favor. Uh, respond with undeserved love. Respond with prayer. Uh, we have this unending blessing from God. We have this unending grace, unlimited grace that comes into our life from God. And this is why God has us in the world, that, that we are to be like him in the midst of the world. We're to be a blessing. And then look what he says at the end of that ninth verse. Uh, Peter says, uh, when we respond like this, uh, because to this we were called, that's why we're in the world, that's what we're here to do. And not only that, so that you may inherit a blessing yourself. Somehow the blessing of God in our lives is tied to our willingness to be a blessing to the people around us in the world. We're called to this purpose to show the world what God is really like as we've experienced him by his grace and his love and his forgiveness in our lives. And as we do that, we receive this blessing from God. And I think, you know, there are other places in the scripture that talk about this. You know, if we're not willing to forgive, then God won't forgive us and so on and so forth. And so you might just kind of ask yourself the question, do you feel really blessed by God? And uh, could it be uh, tied to our willingness to be a blessing to other people? Uh, Jesus, when he was here, told a story about this, and uh, it was in response to Peter. So I thought it appropriate to just refresh your minds about why I think we're called to this. But in Matthew chapter 18, Peter came to Jesus and he asked him a question. He said, Lord, he said, how many times do I have to forgive a brother? who offends me. Seven times, and like seven is like the perfect number. And Jesus responds in verse 22. He says, no, he says, I'll tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. How many times do I have to forgive a person in order to create this harmony that is talked about in verse eight, you know? And then Jesus goes on. He tells this story. He says, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a king 
who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master, the king, ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that they had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before the king and he said, please be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled his entire debt, and let him go. That's what God has done for us. When Jesus died on the cross, took all of our sin, past, present, and future, and paid the price for it so that God could pardon us from all of our sin. And you know this story, right? And uh, verse uh, 28, uh, when that servant who had just been forgiven went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, that's like a hundred pennies, like a buck, okay? Uh, He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees, begged him, please be patient with me, I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went and told their master everything that happened. And then the master called the servant in. He said, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailer to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. Now, here's the verse. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each one of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. That's a heavy verse. That's a heavy verse. When God talks about the way that a God-first person lives and talks about us living in harmony and talks about us receiving evil and insults and responding with a blessing. Like the uh, guy in the video who uh, had such a hard time, and and the guy who came, and the the guard who came and tried to get him to stop singing songs, and he hugged him, and he couldn't understand why would you do something like that. When we receive those insults and those hurts, and we respond with a blessing, we're simply doing what God has done to us but in a magnified way uh, by uh, offering us our great uh, salvation. And so could it be, you know, that um, other people, that you are a blessing to the people who are against you, could it be uh, that that is God's will for us in the midst of the world? And I tell you, when you live like that, you feel like you're dying. Is that not right? And isn't that exactly what Jesus said? You want to follow me? Take up your cross and come follow me. Be willing to die to yourself in order that the Lord might resurrect us in the midst of our lives. And so Peter goes on and uh, in that passage and goes on from there and says uh, in the 14th verse, he says, even if you should suffer for doing what's right, for representing God as he has you know, blessed you, that you go on and bless the next person. You do the right thing. Uh, Even if you should suffer, you're blessed. You will receive a blessing in the midst of what initially feels like suffering and what many of us do everything we can to avoid. 
And uh, how often have you been treated with an insult and given an insult back? How often does somebody do some kind of evil to you and you're just ready to respond with evil? And God says, no, 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 respond with a blessing. Uh, Jesus, I think, again, said the same thing in the um, Sermon on the Mount. You remember in uh, Matthew chapter um, uh, 4, he said, uh, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. If you do the right thing and you take a hit for it, Jesus said you'll be blessed. It's the same thing that Peter is saying here. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Nobody can live like that unless you're a part of the kingdom of heaven. That's how we get into heaven. Because God chooses to bless us in the face of our sinfulness. And he saves us. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus said. Rejoice and be glad because great will be your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who came before you. If you're going to live a God-first life, you're going to pick up some enemies over the course of your lifetime. If you're going to live a God-first life and do that uh, verse 8 that Peter describes and live like that, uh, not everybody's going to be so excited about that. And people will feel convicted by it. And, and when we do the right thing, oftentimes it will cause us to suffer. But God uses suffering you know, to make us strong. I think Peter elaborates on this. If you have your Bibles open to 1 Peter, if you go to chapter 4, just a little bit further in verse 12, uh, Peter goes on and kind of, he says, Dear friends, he says, don't be surprised at the painful trial that you're suffering. That you're suffering. Um, as though something strange were happening to you. And there's a lot of people, you know, well, you know, if I'm going to be a Christian, I'm going to be good. I'm expecting that I'll be blessed in this world. I'm expecting I'll have an easy life in this world. I'll expect that you know, I can now live in comfort in this world. Well, where in Scripture has anybody who's represented God ever had that kind of experience? And so Peter says, look, don't be surprised like something strange has happened to you. But look, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed, when he comes back. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a, you know, knucklehead. It should not be as a murderer or a thief or some kind of criminal, even a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And so on and so forth. Don't be surprised. And then he says, uh, uh, even a little bit further in, in chapter 5, in verse 10, he said, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. God uses suffering to make us strong and steadfast and so that we won't fail in our faith. And it's through suffering a lot of times that we weed away what's really not all that important in life. And we sort of settle down into, you know, who are we really going to live for? How much are we willing to suffer for the cause of Christ? And then um, Peter goes on in the uh, next part of this 14th verse he says, even if you should suffer for what's right, you're blessed. Do not fear what other people fear. Do not be frightened. If you were to ask the question, you know, why is it that I don't live a more God-first life? Why am I not more upfront about my faith? Well, probably it's some kind of fear, right? 
It's fear. And we have a lot of different kinds of fears. But here again in the Bible is one of these places where God says, do not fear. Fear is never our friend. And they're all over the Bible, God is telling us, do not fear, as other people fear. Um, and, and so when you think about this, um, having the spirit of Jesus in our lives and knowing the truth, one of the greatest benefits of being a Christian, I think, is the reduction of fear and anxiety in our life. One of the great things to know that, there's, that the Lord is the overseer or the shepherd of our life. Remember in chapter 2 and verse 25, you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd, the overseer of your souls. There's a, a father in heaven who's watching over our souls. He's the shepherd or the overseer of our souls. In Romans chapter 8, Paul asks the question, you know, if God is for you, who can be against you? Do not fear like other people fear. Do not be frightened as other people are frightened. The fear of God, it seems to me, brings the reduction of every other kind of fear in our life. Let me say it again. The fear of God brings the reduction of every other kind of fear in our life. And uh, one of the great privileges, I think, of um, being a Christian is the reduction of anxiety in being able to entrust ourselves to this loving Father. And I don't know, have you ever sort of done an inventory of the leftover fears in your life? And just think about, um, you know, what, what are some fears that keep me throttled from living this God-first life? And I, I think perhaps uh, uh, there are some folks who would say, you know, well, I, I'm afraid that if I yield everything to, to the Lord that somehow I'll lose my independence. And that's like a precious thing to us Americans. We you really thrive on that independent thing. But, you know, without God, you can't get very far. We are dependent on the Lord and what he's done for us and, and so on. I think it's a fear. I think uh, perhaps we fear being pushed out of our comfort zone. If I were to take what the Lord uh, says, you know, at face value and give myself to it, perhaps I, I wouldn't be as comfortable as I like to be. Uh, another fear, I think, is we fear people's reactions. If I were to live this God-first life and uh, other people would think, you know, you're kind of strange. And you're right, other people would notice. There's something different about you, but that's a good thing. And so the question becomes, well, how do we get past those fears? And, and uh, instead of fear, and this is the heart of this passage in my judgment, he says, do not fear what other people fear. Don't be frightened. But instead, now, verse 15, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. In your hearts... At the core of your being, set apart Christ as the Lord of your life. Have you ever done that? You ever made a conscious decision to say that the Lord is going to be first in my life? I'm going to set him apart from all others, and he is going to be first in my life. Have you ever done that? Um... Set apart Christ as Lord, where he becomes actually the object of our worship, the object of our serving, uh, the number one consideration in the decisions that we make. You might remember in um, Luke chapter 14, um, Jesus said these words. A large crowd was uh, traveling with Jesus and turning to the crowd, Jesus said, if anybody comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, 
He cannot be my disciple. He can't be my disciple. And anybody who doesn't carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everybody who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, what Jesus is saying here is not that we should hate. You know, there's many other places in the Bible that talk about honoring the family relationships and so on. But in comparison to having Christ first in our life, everybody else is second. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. And everybody else takes second place to that. And uh, when Jesus uses the word hate, it's a, it's a uh, comparison word. He's compared to our uh, commitment to him, our, our love for him, our worship of him. Everybody else comes in second place. And in fact, the way that we love everybody else is for his sake and uh, for his glory. And that uh, word there, to set apart, is a verb, and it's in the aorist tense in the Greek language, which means it's an accomplished fact. In other words, it's a once-and-for-all decision that somebody makes that the Lord is going to be first in their hearts. Now, I think that, um, you know, a lot of people recognize Jesus as their Savior, right? A lot of people recognize Jesus, Jesus is my Savior, A lot of people recognize Jesus as Savior in their life, and we're happy to trust him as our Savior because, frankly, who else is there? Where else are you going to find somebody who can put things right between you and God? But if you trust Jesus, the person, he is, in his person, both Savior and Lord. And so Peter is saying to these folks that he's writing to, You need to set apart Christ in your heart as the Lord, as the number one, as your master, as your God that you are going to live with in that very special way. He is the Lord. He's the master of the universe. God, the Bible says, has entrusted all authority to Jesus Christ. And the scripture, you know, you'll notice in this verse 15 that this is a personal thing. Nobody can do this for you. This is a personal thing. And it's at the core of your being. It's in your heart, in your spirit. Set apart Christ as Lord. This is going to be the one that I live for. He is the Lord. He's the master of the universe. And uh, nobody can do that for us, but it always shows up in obedience. Right? It always shows up. If you set apart Christ as Lord in your life... It shows up as obedience. It shows up in baptism. It shows up in time allotted to Bible study because you want to know what does your Lord say. It shows up in tithing. It shows up in witnessing. It shows up in serving other people in forgiveness and compassion and worship. But without Christ, all right, firmly solidified as Lord in our hearts, our fears will drive us to make unholy alliances with the world's way of solving or addressing our fears. And when we cave into that, we've lost the battle. And uh, we begin to go backwards. In in verse 14, you'll notice that um, there's a quote. And uh, that quote comes from Isaiah chapter 8. You'll notice uh, 
Uh, the quote says, um, do not fear what they fear, do not be frightened. It comes from Isaiah chapter 8, from a time in the life of the history of Israel when Ahaz was the king of the southern part of Israel. Israel was divided into north and south, and Ahaz was the king of Judah, the southern part, and he made an alliance with the Assyrians because he was afraid of northern Israel, against God, against what God said to him, against northern Israel, and uh, Ahaz made this uh, alliance because he was afraid. And you might think, you know, how many times have we been afraid and out of our fears um, made these alliances that keep us from really trusting the Lord in the way that he invites us to? And so when the Lord is in first place, however, all of our trials, all of those challenges that come into our life, every crisis, every offense becomes an opportunity to grow an opportunity to develop our faith, to strengthen our faith. And through suffering, as Peter says, our faith is strengthened and it becomes steadfast and uh, we're enabled to bring a blessing. So a God-first life is so out of sync, however, with the world's ways that the next part of this verse 15 in 1 Peter 3 uh, says that people will notice when you live like this. Here's what it says. Um, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. And look, when you do that, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you live with. When you live like that and you put the Lord first, uh, one of the things that flows into our life is hope. And when we live confident about the promises that God has made, hopeful about all the things that God has promised to do in our lives, it begins to show up to the point where people begin to notice and I would say that our hopefulness shows up best in the most hopeless situations, right? Hopefulness shows up best in the most hopeless situations. So when we're in a hopeless situation and our faith rises to the occasion and we are full of hope, it shows up against that backdrop and people notice it. And, and, and Peter says, look, always be ready to give a reason to give uh, an answer, to give uh, an apologetic uh, about this hope that resides in us. Um, and I think this is such a great uh, challenge to live like this. Um, first of all, to say, you know, does my hope show enough to have anybody ever ask me this question? Do I live my life in such a way that that hopefulness, that, that, that reality of my faith shows to the point where people say, you know, you're different. How can you be like this? Uh, I remember when um, uh, one of our ladies was uh, like in Yale Hospital. She was pregnant and she had to be there for like, uh, I don't know, like seven out of the nine months or something. I mean, it was just like, oh, my goodness. How, I'm so glad I'm not a woman when I just would go visit her. And I think of being there for all that time, you know. And uh, yeah, in that process, she uh, was able to lead somebody else to Christ in the midst of all of that. And they noticed her attitude even though she was stuck up against the wall with this pregnancy. And her attitude shone through to the point where that person began to ask questions, and now that person's a part of our church as well. And I think, you know, that's how God works. That in the hopeless kinds of situations, that hopefulness comes through. And so always be prepared to give an answer. The word um, reason or answer is the word that we get apologetics from. Apologetics in theology is that part of theology that gives a reasoned response for our faith. A reasoned answer, 
a reasoned defense of our faith. And again, our hope is most obvious when our situation is most hopeless. And that's when people will notice the most and ask us about, you know, how is it that our lives, even though under this great strain, uh, can be so filled with hope? And uh, why is that? What are some reasons why we can live with this optimism and optimistic hope, this hope that gives strength and courage and that actually becomes noticeable? What are some of the reasons for hopefulness? And I would just, I just reflected and thought about a couple of these. I think uh, the hope in my life comes from the fact of, you know, my sin is gone. I mean, I'm, I don't have the guilt of everything that I've done wrong in my life, that someday I'm going to die, I'm going to stand before God, and I expect to be totally accepted by God because of what Jesus did on the cross. What a great freedom. What great hope it is to have that day in front of us and have our guilt be gone and our anxiety leveled down because our future is so secure. Another reason for the hopefulness that's in us, it seems to me, is the fact that Jesus is coming back. Do you realize that one out of every four verses in the New Testament makes allusion to the fact that Christ is coming back. Peter, in the first chapter, you remember he said in uh, verse 13, he says, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be given to you when Jesus comes back. Set your hope fully on that day when Christ comes back because your whole life will be vindicated. Right now you live a God-first life, people mock you, people insult you, people think you're wasting your life, people think you're a doormat, people think whatever they think. But the moment Jesus sets his feet down on this earth, all of that will be immediately reversed. Give a reason for why you're such an optimistic, hopeful person. Give a reason for why you think the glass is half full instead of half empty. Well, it's because of what Christ has done for us. You know, uh, another reason that I think I live with hope is because I can look back and I can see that God has delivered me from what at the time I thought were impossible situations. He answered prayer. Um, And I think all of us could look back and and see those things. Um, God keeps his word. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I'll give everything else to you in life. Put me first, God first. Seek first the kingdom of God and righteousness. Do the right thing. And all the other things in life I'll give to you. And I, as a kid, got a hold of that verse, and I said, I'm going to dare you to be true to that verse. I'm going to try to live like that. And I would stand before you today and say, you know what? I want for nothing. And I've tried to put him first. And uh, it's a promise that he makes. And when you realize that he's good to his promises, it's a reason for the hope that we live with. I live with hope because I know that uh, the God of the universe loves me. I'm full of hope because I know he loves me. I know it in my heart. Jesus loves me, this I know, for my Bible tells me so. It's just the greatest thing in the world to think that the God of the universe is not against you but for you. Do you realize how many people go around in this world and think that the God of the universe is against them? They know they're guilty. They know they don't deserve his love. And so many people are locked into that, you know, but one of the reasons that we as Christians can have such great hope is because we know that God loves us. Always be ready. Are you ready? Are you prepared for the person this week who's going to ask you, why do you live like you do? Why are you so optimistic and so hopeful and so confident about the future in spite of all the signals that are coming to us about how uncertain the future really is? And then um, Peter goes on and he says, but 
in verse 15. Always be ready to give a reason. Always be ready to give an apologetic. But do this with gentleness and respect. Don't do this as, well, I've got the truth and you don't, and I'm going to put you down and I'm going to show you up and I'm going to destroy you and what you think. And so, no, do this with gentleness and respect. Do this with meekness and humility because the only reason we have what we have is because God has first given it to us. Uh, do this with self-control and not, not being overbearing. And don't get angry. Speak the truth, the Bible says what? In love. If you've ever gotten into one of these discussions, sometimes people get pretty angry about what they believe when you challenge their beliefs and so forth. And we are called to not respond with more anger and ramp up the situation, but with gentleness and with respect. Every person you ever meet is important to God. Every person you ever meet has been created by God. And therefore, we respect the people that we encounter and that we interface with. And... Uh, and then he goes on, and not only that, not only with gentleness and respect, but we ourselves keeping a clear conscience. Keeping a clear conscience. Um, so that those who speak maliciously against our good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Keeping a clear conscience. And uh, again, this is part of that whole process of us uh, being able to represent God into the world. Our conscience is that... Uh, uh, part of ourself that either accuses or excuses us. Our conscience is that God-given sensitivity. It's our, our soul taking inventory on ourselves. And you all know, right, that you have a conscience. And uh, you can sear your conscience and harden your conscience and so on and so forth. But the Bible says that, you know, when we become Christians, that the, the scriptures, God's word, begins to inform our conscience. And uh, it, it alerts us to either... Uh, that we're doing something that we shouldn't be doing and changes us, you know, uh, or uh, it condemns us. And we're called to keep or maintain that clear conscience so that when other people kind of malign us or take shots at us or whatever, uh, they'll end up realizing that th those things aren't really true. You know, the early Christians were accused of like cannibalism because they ate and drank the body and blood of Christ. And people would slander them as cannibals, and they would make all these things up, and they just didn't understand. And, uh, and, and Christians would respond, you know, by loving them back until they could explain the truth and so forth. And so Peter is like, you know, expect that people are going to slander you. Expect that people are going to try and dismiss you by finding something wrong with you. Don't we all cringe when some famous athlete or something, you know, is caught out in some sin? And don't you think, oh, man, I wished he had listened to his conscience somewhere along the line. I wished he had somebody he could go to and talk to about, hey, my conscience is on my case about this or that, and I need some help to get through this or that. Please hold me accountable. Do you have somebody like that in your life, somebody that you can talk to that when your conscience kind of kicks up and you need some help to kind of get through whatever it is that you're facing? Wouldn't it have been good for uh, some of those more famous Christians? You know, when Tim Tebow came to New York, I, I prayed for him. I said, oh, I hope he doesn't blow it. Just prayed and hoped that he didn't do something that would just be so out of character that people would use it to malign Christianity. And uh, the same is true with us. And so Peter is saying, look, live, live with your conscience. Be sensitive and let God inform your conscience, you know, and... Uh, uh, and have somebody that you can talk to when your conscience kind of kicks up. 
feeling a little guilty about this or that. And uh, let that person help you come back to the cross and get a fresh look at Christ and what he's done and, and so forth. And then verse 17, as we kind of go through here, verse 17, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Some suffering is God's will. Some people have the idea that suffering is never God's will. I don't think you could make that case from Peter's writings here. Some suffering is God's will. And God realizes that we should suffer for doing good. We should never be suffering for doing evil, right? As a meddler or murderer, as, as we said before. Um, but some suffering, it's better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. To bring you to God. How do people ever come to God unless a righteous person suffers for their unrighteousness? That's how you were brought to God, because Jesus, the perfectly righteous person, took our unrighteousness and suffered for it on the cross. And I think Peter is saying, you know, that we need to be willing to do the same thing, that when we encounter unrighteousness from other people, we need to be able to suffer that unrighteousness that's done to us, that slander, those uh, evils, the insults and all of that. And when we do, for doing the right thing, we're like Christ. We're just, you know, coming along. His death, his suffering and his death uh, is the way that salvation came into our lives. And I dare say, if you're concerned to be leading other people to God through Christ, that one of the best ways to do it is to be willing to endure the suffering that comes to you from the people you're trying to reach. And to be able to put up with it, and to be able to be patient, and to be able to not write people off, and to be able to not get mad and just say, well, I'm done with them. You know, I've tried, they don't listen, they don't care, they're morons, they're, you know, I'm done. And it's easy to do that. But it's not what Christ did for us. He suffered for us. And I think when we live a God-first life and we're willing to suffer uh, at the hands of the unrighteous uh, because we're doing the right thing to bring them to God, you're doing just us in a small way what Christ did for you. Paul says the same thing in, in Colossians chapter 1 where he says, I'm filling up in my life that which is still lacking of Christ's suffering. And uh, it's part of our extension of the body of Christ into the world in which we live. And it's hard. It feels like you're dying. And it's not comfortable. And it's not kind of always where we want to be. Uh, but it's necessary in order to bring people to Christ. And then I think Peter elaborates on this in uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, where he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude. We should have this attitude that Christ had that he was going to suffer for us. And we've got to just expect... We're going to pay a price. We're going to take a hit on behalf of other people if we want to bring them to God. Arm yourself with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. When you get to that place in your Christian life where you set apart Christ as Lord and your whole life is about doing his will in whatever arena you happen to be in, all of a sudden a, life, a lifestyle of sinfulness is, is not your issue anymore. Um, because you're willing to suffer in your body. And as a result, he doesn't live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. 
For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you don't plunge in with them and into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, and so on. So, you know, have you had that experience? You come to Christ, your life changes, your friends who knew you in the past want to know, like, what happened to you? How come you're not running with us anymore? And you have the opportunity to share with them, and they begin to heap abuse on you, and you're willing to take it, and you're willing to stay being their friend, you're willing to stay in the crowd as much as they'll have you, in order that you might lead them to Christ. To set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts means that the will of God becomes our North Star. The will of God becomes our direction setter. Uh, The will of God is our guiding principle. And like Jesus, we live for the will of God, even to the point of being willing to die before we would ever deny that he is our Lord. Verse 15, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everybody who asks to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do it with gentleness and with respect and keep a clear conscience. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words in Peter's letter. So easy for us to ignore this whole piece of suffering. So easy for us to uh, just embrace Jesus as our Savior. We love it that Jesus came into the world to take away our sins and our guilt and to assure us of a place in heaven and, and a right standing before the God of the universe. What a great gift that is. But Jesus is also Lord. He's Lord of the universe. He's the one to whom you, our Heavenly Father, has entrusted all authority. And so Jesus has a lot to say about life and its purpose and its meaning and how to live it. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we, each of us here this morning, would have that, uh, be able to uh, say, yes, I have set aside Christ as the Lord in my life, the number one person in my life, more than my spouse, more than my kids, more than my family, more than my friends, more than anybody else, I want to be true to him and for his sake to be true in all these other relationships. To that end, I pray, Heavenly Father, you would help us to be obedient to those things that are most important to our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.